Let's continue to pray. Father, for Chris and Lindsay, for the family, for the family here at Oaks, we are so grateful that, Father, you will not neglect any of us. But through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have raised us up. And so this morning, by your grace, may you encourage Chris and Lindsay. May you strengthen them, empower them, and may you as the God of hope fill them with all joy and peace in believing that they might abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, it's a privilege to be here, and Seth, thank you so much. I am OLD. In fact, when I walk around, when I walk around and, you know, people will tell me, my own family members will tell me, well, Papa, you're, you're sort of leaning to the right. And, and, and then they, then my wife will say, bring your shoulders back, you know. Uh, and, and so these comments continue to reign in our family. And um, I just simply just say, have you heard of the disease that I have? And that sort of sobers people, you know. And I just say, you know, it is O-L-D. Now, the joy of being O-L-D is to know that God has been faithful to me since childhood. I was raised in a, uh, a little farm stead down in southeastern Ohio in Marietta. I learned of Jesus Christ before I knew I was learning of Jesus Christ because I was one of those fortunate children that were taken to church to hear the word of God. And because of that, I have never escaped nor do I want to the word of God. But to say that along the way there have not been battles would be not true. It would only prove me as a liar, and I choose not to lie to myself anymore or to lie to you about the Christian life. So early on, coming to know Jesus Christ as an eight-year-old, and I had so many sins piled up by that time that I had to repent. It took me 14 weeks to repent. Seriously, if I would have known what I had done already, I probably would have. But I think the biggest thing I could say right at that time was that I was not kind to my older sisters. And frankly, they weren't kind to me, I think. And I am still in therapy for what they've done to me. <laughs> one 11 years older and one 6 years older. I am sure that they were kind. In fact, my sisters and my sister who is still here on planet Earth has had a profound impact on our family and our lives. And so I stand here understanding that an eight-year-old understands the gospel in a different way than a 71-year-old. And as I was then growing up in the church, as you are, some of you, I found that what was happening to me was, though I had trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, I have no question that at age eight that I was a sinner in need of his grace at that time, 
I began to roll into the next phase of life, and that included things that I could never anticipate. And then as I was moving forward, I could not justify in my growing faith or my growing understanding of the law, I could not justify my own sins. I found myself in this tremendous struggle. I wanted to do the right things. In fact, many of those saints that I grew up with, older, would pat me on the back and say, Rick, what a nice young man you are. And I would say in my conscience, I'm sorry, you don't know what kind of man I am. So in those years of not so much elementary school, but middle school and high school, my flesh became a raging fire. And that fire caused me to live in shame, live in dread. The Savior that had come to save me didn't seem like he was saving me. I have explained it to many at this stage of my life. I seemed like I was on the ever-turning hamster wheel. Can you picture that? It was a hamster wheel of pleasure, guilt, shame. Pleasure, guilt, shame. That being in my flesh. And so as I walked through this journey, I found myself in great conflict. At the same time, going to church every Sunday. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I was practicing the Christian life, but I was lacking in the power of that Christian life. And when that happens to us, I think you would agree, that Satan has a field day. You hear in your mind what a rotten person you are. How could you possibly call yourself a Christian? How could you possibly name the name of Christ? How could you possibly witness for him? Because you, Rick, are the hypocrite. Look it up in the dictionary. Find my picture under the word hypocrite. I lived in the darkness, and yet I'm sure my parents didn't know. I lived with myself and the desires that were coming up in me that I had no way of knowing how to change the direction in the course. Pleasure, guilt, shame. Pleasure, guilt, shame. Pleasure, guilt, shame. So then that all came to a collapse at a time at the University of Kentucky when I was an immoral person and all of the law that I knew, all that had been taught to me since childhood, all of that only led me to say, there's no way out. God, why don't you just kill me and take me home to be with you because I am of no earthly good to you. I prayed that prayer. I thought in that day in Lexington, Kentucky, that prayer was perhaps a great prayer. But as the Lord obviously did not answer that prayer, I found 
that my life and what I was saying to him and verbalizing to him is that you can save me from eternal hell, but you cannot change the life that I'm living, the sowing of my life now. What kind of God is that? It certainly isn't the God of resurrection. If you think I alone struggle with that, I want you to turn just for a moment to Romans. Romans chapter 7. There's a famous man that you know, I'm sure, and that famous man is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, as he gives himself to this statement in Romans chapter 7, as he's talked about how he was buried and raised up with Christ in uh, and through Christ from death to life in Christ, he then says this in Romans, if I can find this in my Bible, here it is, Romans chapter 7 verse 14, and maybe you can relate to this, I certainly can, and Paul now is pouring out his heart in this journey And he says this, for we know that the law is spiritual. This is Romans chapter 7, verse 14. But I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For I am doing, or what I'm doing, I do not understand. And what I'm practicing, what I like, I'm not practicing what I like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I'm doing the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. In other words, as Paul would later say in Galatians, he would say that the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. The purpose of the law is like a a law out on the road here, is just simply Understanding that the municipalities have understood that this is a neighborhood and there are children and there are families and there are businesses and this is how fast you should drive. And then one day if you were driving in Worcester and you are pulled over, you are pulled over for a violation because you're going 30 and a 25. And you might say, why? There's no traffic in front of me. I don't see any kids anywhere because the law says that they who have determined this for the best well-being of the community have set the law. And I then am reminded it tutors me to come to a point of using my cruise control. Now the reality is this. Look at verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willingness is present, but the doing of good is not. Fast forwarding now, look at his statement that concludes this passage in verse 24. Paul the apostle says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And I ask you, church, can you relate to this? Can you understand 
the, the identity that he is in Christ, but now this struggle between the flesh and the spirit and the work of God is trying to be hijacked again by the law, the do's and don'ts. If I do this checklist, then I'm good with God. If I don't do this, I am not good with God. And that checklist of sin, youthful lust, and all of the things that are communicated in this great book that we study leaves us with dread, leads us with fear, and Paul expresses it, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? You know there's theological debates as to whether or not this is the pre-Paul, before salvation. I've come to the conclusion with this passage in the book of Galatians that no, this is, this is the Christian struggle. This is the battle. Our flesh is not gone. And so the law keeps coming up because we're breaking the law of God. But that tutor has gone away, so what do we do? How can we live? So now turn, if you will, to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church, and there is this struggle. We have Jew and Gentiles that are believers. One has been steeped in the law like Paul. The other one has been in his own right as a Gentile, lived the life. Just eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. And now their lives have been arrested by Jesus Christ. But now we're coming together as a body. What do we do? They have the Jewish traditions of circumcision and other traditions. We have nothing, but we've been saved We've been saved by the mighty grace of God. And Paul is straddling that tension in the book of Galatians. And as he straddles that tension, he comes to this place in chapter 2. And I want you to back up to verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, verse 16 Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law through faith in Jesus Christ, even we who have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law, since we, or excuse, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. I think he makes it clear there that there is nothing in our own person that is going to rise up and demonstrate a Christ-empowered life. Amen? It's true. And so finally, he says in verse 19, and though and to the law I died, or excuse me, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. In other words, that law that he had lived by and failed over and over, the hamster wheel that Paul was on, falling off of that hamster wheel, he says, listen, God had to show me and teach me that the law cannot save, the law cannot sustain, and the law cannot bring me to serving the living God. 
And so he says now in 20. Most of our translations are the same in this. So would you read with me the word of God in verse 20? For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith who loved me and gave himself up for me. Amen? The crucified. How does a man or woman or a young man or woman claim that their life is bound in the crucified Christ? Well, simply, we have to denounce certain things. Verse 21, for I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. Let me read that again. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you and I walk from this place and we begin to try to fulfill this Christian life through the law, we are saying to God himself, then Jesus, you died needlessly. Your whole life, your whole death, your whole resurrection, you have now, like Rick Newsom as an 8-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 20-year-old, you have left me now to live out this law on my own, in my own power, and I can't. And Paul said, I won't. I can't. But Paul said, I won't. I borrowed some tools. Dan ought to recognize these. And the reality is that that's a pretty good tool, right? Some of you may say, well, I've got a rigid or I've got something else. But the bottom line is, that's a pretty good tool. What is that tool? This is class. Uh, what is that tool used for? Come on. Oh, sawing wood. Okay. Pretty good. Pretty good. How about this? Drill. Yeah. And what's that for? <laughs> this is pretty simple, congregation. <laughs> this is not a trick. <laughs> All right. Let's see if there's anything else in here. Uh, well, here's another drill. Yeah. And uh, so... We have a variety of drills. How about this? Now, these are effective tools. These tools can be used to do things much faster. I mean, imagine that I just decided that I was going to get down and I'm going to start sawing this. And I, I, you know, I, I set this in place. I pull up the guard and you say, don't do that. First of all, you're going to mess up the saw and you're going to mess up the flooring. Don't do it. Right? Dan, right? <laughs> Wake up, Dan. All right, so here we go. Or, or no, 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 no. I don't need a power saw. I need a drill with a drill bit, and I start. Now, what do these have in common? Wait, wait, wait a minute. What do these have in common as they are? 
they are created by incredible engineers, right? Incredible engineers. These are fine tools to do work for the one who holds the tool. But there's a problem. You've already identified it. The problem is that without the infusion of life, they will not work. They won't. But the moment that life is infused in them, then no matter even though that they are different as they are, if I turn this around, maybe I'll get this right, they're different. But the reality is that each tool uniquely crafted can be used when it is what? Empowered. Empowered. And to do life with Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, it is as if, okay, Rick, it's left to you. You be the light of the world. Oh, oh, Rick, you know, you be the one that drills down in that person's life and help them come from death to life. My friends, it's absolute futility. And I think you know that. You know that truth. But then why is it when we're in school, why is it when we're at work, why is it when we are doing community activities that we somehow think that our commitment to Christ could be anything more than a dead-end instrument in the hand of mighty God, but lacking the Spirit of God in him or her. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about the promised power. Let me give you some examples. Some examples of that issue of power. Because Jesus spoke of these things, in, in John, he says this. John 14, you know that passage, it's the upper room. And he just simply says this. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Wait a minute, let me read this again. I am going to, Jesus, I am going to ask the Father and I am going to ask him, the Father, on your behalf that he will send someone that is inside of you a helper that will come and live inside of you and in living inside of you, he will then do something that you and I can't do. Who is this person? He is the spirit of truth. This is John 14, 16 to 18. Write that down. Whom the world cannot receive because neither he sees them or they don't know, the world doesn't know him, but you know him. He dwells with you. He will be in you, believer, 
I, listen to this, I will not leave you as orphans. And I admit to you, and perhaps you could admit to yourself, that when you're battling all of the things of the flesh and you're going down this path yourself, you say to yourself, I feel like I'm orphaned from God. I feel like I'm alone here without him. Though he's my savior, he is to be my Lord. Well, it goes on. I don't have time this morning to communicate all of the references, but we would go back now to Galatians. After Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. Listen to that statement. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer, what's the word? Now, you put your name there. I'm going to say the verse. Ready? I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer... Now, that is pathetic. I mean, is is that fair? Are are you so far from the track? You say, I can't even put my name there. I am am so disgusted with myself like Paul was. I, I can't even put my name there. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer. That's better. That lives. How can a person move from death to life? How can a person move from the impossible to the possible? How can a self-righteous, self-reliant, self-centered, narcissistic person move from death to life? It is answered in this book. And to some degree, we're all of those things. How can we move from that? He says, listen, it starts with crucifixion. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I, Rick, that lives. It is Christ where? Wait a minute, say, come on. Christ in where? In me. Who is me? <laughs> me. Christ isn't someone walking down the path beside us. Christ through the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, said, you know what? Today, I'm going to turn the lights on in that person because they turned to me. They repented of their sin. They agreed that I am the resurrected Christ, that I died for their sins. And I'm telling you, I'm not just giving them the idea of Christianity. It's not just a religious term. I am giving me to them, and I am living in them. And he promised in what we wrote, what we read in John, this spirit of Christ who lives in us will never orphan us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He will come to us, and he'll teach us the word of God. He'll empower us to be witnesses. Do you think that there's people around this world right now that they need empowered to be witnesses? Do you think there's people that are suffering? People that are in their very right scared to death? But see, Christ put the light on. And the cowardly disciples that had walked with Jesus for three and a half years 
and hid, and I would have been one of those. I may have been one of the Pharisees striking out against Jesus. And he said, you know, wait for the promise. The Holy Spirit's coming. And in that, there was a separation for a moment, a separation meaning that there would be time before Pentecost came, and the Holy Spirit moved upon those who were already his. People repented, and they were brought into the family of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. But unfortunately, we live as if the Spirit of God is a dead cell, a dead battery, a dead power source. So I've got to get with it, get back down on the tools, drill it with no power, run it without any power. You say, well, I don't want to do that. Okay, good. Because God does not want you to do that. In fact, he is so committed to you and your freedom that he says this. To foolish, listen, Galatians. Look at 3.1. Don't miss this. This is the word of God. He's speaking to foolish believers. Don't miss this. You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? All right, wait a minute. Salvation is in Christ. I responded to Jesus in faith that he is the Son of God. He came to die for my sins. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I've entrusted myself to him. And when we genuinely, according to Paul's writings in Romans, when we do that, then what does he do? We are taken into his death and burial and resurrection. From Calvary to the grave to life. Now, let me pause at this moment, a very critical moment. Like me, I was at a place in my life, in college, that I had no idea where I stood with Jesus. Oh, listen, this immoral man? Oh, I'm still religiously going to church, unlike most of the athletes there on campus at UK. I'm still trying to share the gospel. I am still trying to pray. But how effective do you think my life was with the hidden things of my life that I wish no one would ever know? And so the enemy wants to say, well, I guess Jesus can't do anything about that. Oh, and what a wretched man you are. You claim to be a Christian. And I was hounded and tormented until I came to a place where God took me. And here's where he took me. He took me back to Calvary. You say, well, Rick, you know, you prayed a prayer when you are eight. Well, maybe I did. In fact, I know I did. I was baptized when I was eight. 
but my life was a contradiction. And so I knew better than trust my water baptism. I knew that Holy Communion would not save me. I knew that I couldn't save myself, so what could I do? I cried out to Jesus in my parents' basement after my freshman year, having lived in shame for years in different ways. I said, Jesus, I've got nothing to give you but my guilt and my shame. Pleasure, guilt, shame. Pleasure, guilt, shame. I had many great opportunities, but I lacked the confidence to boldly die for Christ. I lacked the confidence to use my voice to speak of Christ. Well, you said you were witnessing. Yes, powerlessly. But the truth changes lives with or without me, right? But when in that basement I cried out to Jesus Christ and I said, I've got nothing to give you but my guilt and my shame, he whispered in my heart and in my mind, that's why I went to the cross. So my friends, we all live in some point of reference between law and grace. If I can just do more, if I can just read more, if I can just pray more, if I can just, oh, on the other side, I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed. Oh, I didn't even fail. I didn't get my quiet time in. I, I failed. We live in this torturous moment when we Stand before a holy God who said on Calvary's cross, it is what? How finished? Was it finished for your sins? So I ask you this question. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Well, Rick, no. It's the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. Male and female, slave, free. We're all one in Christ. Okay, then tell me, what did he do on the cross to save you? Can you make a list? At eight, it's tough. It was just, I wasn't kind to my sisters. Oh, I also did some lying. I hated some people at school. At 71, do you think I can make a list? Are you ashamed to tell another human being that in order for you to be saved, he, Christ, had to save you from this addiction? From this Anger from this pattern of life. Jesus went to the cross 
And it wasn't like carblanche, it was your sin, my sin, that he took to that cross and he said, I'm not ashamed to die for you. So finally, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer, we try this one more time. <laughs> I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer who lives. It's Christ who lives in. <laughs> okay, you can say me. That's all right. And the life that I now live in this flesh, in this mortal body, in this system that is attracted to the world, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved. We had this mix going back and forth. And gave himself up for, say your name, just to yourself. Gave himself up for. Freedom. True freedom. Freedom. I don't care what they think. I care what Jesus did. And I will with confidence bear the testimony and whether it is just simply my testimony as an eight-year-old or four-year-old or 44-year-old, I know Jesus went to that cross. I know that he raised me up from that grave. I know that he put his spirit in me because the spirit of God now convicts me of sin and righteousness and judgment and it takes me to worship Christ even more because I don't want to be that person but I am now in Christ. This spirit will never leave me. I will never be orphaned. He will not leave me. He will not forsake me ever. And no matter what happens to our world, no matter who breaks down doors, when the Spirit of God took cowardly disciples and infused them with the Holy Spirit, they became what? They became empowered to do the work of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. The light was on wherever they went, whatever school they were in, whatever system and city they were in. Because they knew that Jesus went to that place and died for their sins personally, their betrayal, their denial. He died for it. Your sins, my sins. Amen? Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, we arrive in your presence because you've been here before we got here. Oh, Lord God, may the name that is written in the Lamb's book of life be true of every person in this room. And, Lord, I pray that if there is any doubt today, like there was in me, of my salvation because of my life and my trying to be a good person, oh, Lord God, rid us of that and set us free. In Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.